you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. The CDC says if you're vaxxed, you can take off your mask and relax, eh, for the most part. But maybe you're still planning to wear them all the time, indoors or out. And if you get accused of being addicted to wearing masks, hear why you could respond with, not addicted, traumatized into wearing them indefinitely. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alliest has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. I'm Martinez. Thanks for joining us. You know, for many, one of the biggest points of anxiety during this pandemic has been all about school. Now, all year, the questions were many. Will, when will the schools open? If they open, should I send my child? How will it work? Will it be safe? And now that most schools have resumed some portion of on-campus instruction, the questions now are about the fall. Will schools open fully? If they do, should I send my kid? When will we know what the plan is? And, of course, the marathon man question, will it be safe? Now, as far as the Los Angeles Unified School District is concerned, we're not yet sure what will happen in August. But just yesterday, Governor Gavin Newsom said all school districts in the state should reopen for full-time, five-day-a-week instruction. And he tied that to billions in funding proposals, although he stopped short of a mandate. And today, Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, the second largest teachers union in the U.S., also called for a full reopening of the nation's schools. Yet, resistance among many families remains. Here to discuss what's driving this and what can be done about it, we have two professors of education from UCLA with us. John Rogers, director of the university's Institute for Democracy, Education and Access. John, welcome back. Good afternoon, eh? Also with us, Tyrone Howard, Director, Blackmail Institute, and the Pritzker Family Endowed Chair in Education to Strengthen Families. Tyrone, welcome back to you as well. Good to be back. Man. All right, John, let's start with you. Uh, what would you identify as the biggest points of contention when it comes to that question of whether kids should be back in school in person? I think there still is a lot of hesitancy on the parts of some communities about whether or not 
it's time to come back. You know, some communities have been particularly hard hit by COVID and are still feeling the effects of that. There's uncertainty about safety. There's some dissatisfaction with district plans, particularly at the middle school and high school level. Some parents are still trying to figure out childcare. And then I think more importantly, I think educators just need to listen. They need to hear what young people and parents are, are thinking and what we can do as educators to make students feel comfortable and feel invited back into the schools. It's interesting that the Chicago Teachers Union has initiated a door knocking campaign, going out and trying to talk with folks and get a sense of what's on their minds and how we can bring people back to school. And wasn't there a, a Journal of Science article that found when students wore masks and followed certain protocols that that really limited spread? That is right. The, the, the Journal of Science came out with a study a couple of weeks ago, and it did say that when young people went back to school, family members had an increased rate of contracting COVID, about 30% more likely. Now, when schools had put in place conditions like masking, like social distancing, that increase went away. So there are things schools can do. I think schools need to put those conditions in place, and then they need to communicate with parents and young people, what they're doing to make people feel comfortable. Tyrone, what else do you think is at play as parents and and caregivers kind of wrestle with uh, whether to send their kids back to school in person? Yeah, I think there's a a larger elephant in the room that needs to be addressed, which is the fact that for many communities, and let's say black and brown families in particular, schools weren't that great prior to the pandemic. Schools didn't serve them adequately prior to the pandemic. So for lots of parents, lots of caregivers, and for many older students, the question is, why do I want to go back to a place that I didn't feel affirmed, I didn't feel supported, Uh, Many students feel like they were highly surveilled and punished and and, and policed. So I think we have to recognize that this may be a pivotal, pivotal turning point for the way we do schools. We're doing some data right now, collection with students who are saying, I am much more comfortable, much more autonomous, being able to work from home to do my schooling at my own pace and my own time and not having to be in schools where I feel so confined and controlled. Now, while students do miss some of the social dynamic that comes from schools, many of them find those social dynamics in other spaces, uh, social media and other, other aspects of this. So I think this is a moment that schools have to ask, what is it that we are asking kids to come back to? If it's the same thing that was in place prior to COVID, lots of students and their parents and caregivers are going to say, you know what, we're okay. So Tyrone, for the voices that say, hey, they should be back in school, you know, vaccines out, everything should be fine. You're saying that uh, there are aspects to this that maybe people haven't quite deeply thought of enough. Absolutely. I mean, if we're frank about this, here's the reality. We still have a 20th century model of how we think about schools, how we do schools in 2021. Our students are very much engaged in lots of technological ways of thinking and doing and learning and communicating, and we still have not caught up in schools. And so I think there's been a lot of talk about how do we reimagine and re-envision the way schools work. I think in this moment, what we're going to have to do is the following. We're going to have to do voice and choice. We have to give voice, as my colleague John Rogers said, to parents and caregivers about what they need. But there also has to be choice because for many parents and for many caregivers and students, they much rather have choice in terms of whether or not they do full hybrid, whether or not they do partial instruction in person, or whether or not they choose to come back in person at all. I think that's got to be a priority at this time. 
And John Tyrone earlier mentioned uh, socialization, being back in a classroom with with other kids and how there are other options available. But I, I think generally being around other people, for most people, I would think, uh, depending on how you feel about it, uh, is, is good. You're around other human beings and, and you develop uh, skills that maybe help you for socialization later in life. When, when, when we consider how important it is for kids, uh, which points to maybe a benefit of being in-person instruction, what else should we consider about why it might be good for kids to return in person? Well, I think we have public schools because we want to create spaces where young people can learn to interact with one another across lines of diversity in ways where they feel powerful, in ways that they feel affirmed. And this is particularly important for issues like language development. As we think about Los Angeles Unified being a district that serves roughly a third of the students or English learners, we, schools are sites in which young people can interact with one another, both inside of classrooms and then on the schoolyard in ways where they're developing their language capacities because they're interacting with each other, they're talking, they're, they're understanding one another. And, and that's critical to young people's um, academic language development, where they, they develop particular skills and, and ways of speaking. And, and, and we need to, to provide those, those sorts of opportunities for young people inside of schools. Tyrone, is the screen enough of a substitute to replace what John just mentioned? Well, that's, that's what remains to be seen. There's mm-hmm. some research that would suggest that the screen is not enough. And there's even some more disturbing research that shows that, you know, young people engage, you know, in devices on an ongoing basis. And they are much more comfortable with screens and devices than they are with actual human beings. Now, we can debate the merits of that. But I think here's the thing. We cannot use a one-size-fits-all approach. We have to recognize that students are going to have different needs. There are some students who thrive and want and need the in-person instruction. Conversely, there are students who much rather prefer to walk in their own homes, sit in their own uh, uh, comfort zones and do this work at home. And I think schools have to be flexible enough to give both those options and a multitude of other options a viable opportunity for students to be able to succeed. What we also know is this, for many students, there are some concerns that the screen time Uh, Increased screen time causes high levels of anxiety because students are oftentimes really bothered by having to constantly scrutinize themselves on the screen. But at the same time, they don't want to come to school and be in person either. So we have to be nimble. We have to be flexible. We have to be amenable to the different ways that our our young people are accessing new new information as we think about what school should look like. And Tyrone and John, I'll give uh, my grandkids as an example. They they go to class uh, or they were when it was full time online. They were going to class at my house because I have better Internet connection in the apartment building that they live in. And I saw my two granddaughters come out of their shell. I mean, they were participating in class. They were active and engaged. And the teachers in their in their uh, summaries of, of the, the school year said that they had never seen them be so engaged. And, and it's a different dynamic, I think, for some people, John. Like, for some people, dealing with people you know, face-to-face is one thing, and they can deal with it. But for others, other things come out when they're maybe not in front of people. I think that's right. I think... Different young people are going to thrive in in different environments. I also think that great teaching brings out young people's capabilities, whether it's online (laughs) or in person. And to Tyrone's earlier point, our schools often have not been sites of great teaching. They've often not been sites that have affirmed the lived experience of all young people, have made young people feel comfortable, feel like their ideas and their cultural background matters. 
if we can do that in schools, young people are going to want to be there. They're going to want to be with friends. They're going to want to interact with teachers. They're going to want to have extracurricular activities. We just need to make schools what they have not yet been. So Tyrone, on that, on what John said about schools maybe not acknowledging lived experiences as well as uh, they should have in the past, and you even alluded to this a little bit as well, how do parents... How do parents express that to other parents who maybe are more gung-ho about getting their kids back in school and to teachers and administrators who maybe want the kids back in school, but those parents say, you know what, can you listen to me for a second? So this is where I think it's important for administrators and district officials and leaders to really begin to you know, solicit the voices of those parents and caregivers. I think the, the knocking on doors programs that John mentioned is a great example of talking to parents. What do you need? What do you want? Uh, lots of student and parent and caregiver surveys can be helpful. We need to make informed decisions where parent voice and caregiver voice is at the center of what we're doing because lots of parents and lots of students will tell you that curriculum is outdated, uh, instruction leaves a lot to be desired, uh, there's no room for imagination or innovation, and students are oftentimes in school struggling because they don't have the opportunity to explore and to think aloud and to communicate in a diverse number of ways uh, to be able to, to, to put forth you know, new ways of thinking and new ways of knowing. School shouldn't be this place that feels constraining and confining. It should be a place that encourages exploration and encourages innovation. And I think if we hear that from students and parents, it really requires us to do something different. I think that we're having a different conversation if we say not just focus on opening schools. I think the goal should be, to John's point, how do we improve online instruction? I believe in some form or fashion, online instruction is here to stay. And so I think we've got to put just as much time and attention around improving online instruction as we do on whether or not we choose to open schools and what that looks like. And there's no guarantee that there won't be another pandemic sometime in the future, right? So we got we, we probably should be prepared for this happening again. You're right, because we don't we hope and pray that that it doesn't happen again. But there is the possibility. But I do think what this is really forcing schools to do and maybe force is too strong of a word is to think about dynamic ways of offering educational opportunities. We have known for far too long for many students, they just don't thrive in the traditional ways that schools have been set up. And I think this moment has introduced the, the, the potential of what online learning can look like. And so you're right, A, that if we do find ourselves in a situation again, we don't want to be caught off guard like we were 15 months ago where we had a, almost a half of our teachers did not know much and did not have much capacity or efficacy around online instruction. Talking to John Rogers, director of the UCLA Institute for Democracy, Education and Access. Also with us, education professor Tyrone Howard, director, Black Male Institute at UCLA. Uh, mentioned how uh, both Governor Newsom and, and Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers, each called for schools to fully reopen in the fall. Now, technically not a mandate, but if that is indeed what happens, how can districts, uh, John, and other officials help ease the anxiety of some of these families? Well, one of Governor Newsom's initiatives, I think, can can provide some incentives for young people and families as they think about whether or not to come back to schools. Governor Newsom is suggesting putting $3 billion towards community schools, towards efforts that will allow schools to have mental health services, uh, physical health services, uh, other, other, other provisions of, of supports for families. That those services are a real incentive whereby young people are going to want to go to school so that they have access to those services. I think that's the sort of dynamic that we need to put in place so that young people feel like if I go to school, it's going to matter in my daily life. It's going to help me advance towards college. And Tyrone, on the incentive part of this, uh, Governor Newsom 
did make it seem as if there's a bit of a carrot and stick approach when it comes to some of this funding that that he'd like to spend on schools. Um, when it comes to schools in black and brown communities that maybe aren't so eager to come back, some of the kids and parents aren't so eager to come back. How do you, how does that get squared with all this money that could be on the table for a school that uh, you know that may not get it if their kids aren't back in class? Yeah, you know this 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 concerns me a little bit, a because while I understand the 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 rationale behind what the governor's doing. It also suggests that we're going to hang this carrot out here for black and brown and poor communities to come back to schools without recognizing that there are some deeply flawed challenges and problems with schools. And if we're going to ask students to come back to schools, we have to continue to ask what are they coming back to? And I wish the governor would say we're also going to put some significant amounts of funding into those schools that are oftentimes uh, underfunded. Uh, don't have adequate resources, don't have adequate instructional supports in schools, don't have adequate technology. I think if you combine those kinds of enhancements and school supports along with incentives, I think then you've got a much more reasonable argument. But just to say we're going to sort of hang this carrot out here, and if you don't return, then we're going to penalize you, that's a bad message to send because then we're going to basically punish those schools and those communities that are already underserved and all happen to be the same schools and communities that were hit hardest by COVID, and then we see gaping gaps become even wider. John, as we think about more kids going back to school in the fall, I heard a lot of calls for more mental health services for students. But what is one thing you think you hope schools districts implement? So I have lots of ideas, but the one thing that I hope that they implement is to ask young people what they want to see, what they need to thrive, what they need to feel more powerful. I think if we do that, we will recreate our schools in ways that are fundamentally different. Tyrone, what about you? What are you hoping to see? You know, I'm like my colleague and friend, John Rogers. I would love to put student voice at the center, but I also want to add something around mental health because I think we cannot underestimate the power of this moment and what is meant for students' mental health and well-being. There's a big focus being placed on learning loss and how we make up learning loss. I've been saying we need to put Maslow before Bloom. We have to make sure students have their most basic needs met, food, safety, shelter, uh, sense of belonging. If that's not in place, then we're going to struggle to make up learning loss gaps. We know students have suffered the loss of loved ones. We know students have suffered rates of anxiety, depression, social isolation, loneliness. We have seen some data from the Center for the Disease Control that talked about suicidal ideation rates among young people has increased. We have to double, triple, quadruple down the kinds of supports we, we put in place in schools. Psychiatric social workers, mental health therapists, counselors need to be a staple in all schools, but especially those communities and schools that have been hit hardest by COVID because students are still struggling with the ramifications that COVID has wrought on certain communities. That's education professor Tyrone Howard, director of Black Male Institute at UCLA, and also John Rogers, director of the UCLA Institute for Democracy, Education, and Access. Tyrone, John, thank you very much. Thank you, Act. And we want to know how you feel about this conversation you just heard. Should schools reopen fully in the fall, and what should that look like? What do you think students need the most? Call and give us a a voicemail at 626-583-5281. That's 626-583-5281. Please leave us your name, where you are from, and how we can get a hold of you. Once again, that number is 626-583-5281. More Take Two coming up in 60 seconds. Stay with us.
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Democracy needs to be heard. This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. It's a fact. Local journalism fuels democracy. When local news thrives, so does civic participation. LAist and NPR are committed to keeping you and your community informed. But we can't do that without your support. Democracy needs you, and so do we. So please become a member now at laist.com slash give. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm A. Martinez. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention loosened guidelines today allowing fully vaccinated people to ditch masks in most outdoor and indoor gatherings. Now, L.A. County has yet to follow suit, but currently allows fully vaccinated folks to forego masks in small outdoor gatherings. And California is planning to ease up on their mask mandate after June 15th. But there are still some people who want to continue wearing their masks anyway. And no, they're not just doing it out of some irrational fear or to score political points. Shayla Love, a senior staff writer advice, has written an article called People Aren't Addicted to Wearing Masks, They're Traumatized. And she told us earlier today about why some people still want to mask up. Yeah, so I should say that there's a lot of reasons why people might want to keep wearing masks as the restrictions loosen. My piece was specifically about mental health concerns. And within mental health, there are two groups that are probably going to be more likely to return to um, less precautions more slowly. And those two groups are people who had mental health concerns before the pandemic, like anxiety or OCD, and the people who had really stressful or traumatic experiences over the past year. So that's people who had COVID themselves, people who currently have long COVID symptoms, or people who lost family members or loved ones due to COVID. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. That That's trauma right there. And that that's the longer lasting effects of trauma. You might want to still do some things that you feel maybe keep you in that safe zone as opposed to everyone else. If they're fine with it, that's that's fine. But uh, yeah, th- th- that's where the trauma comes in. Totally. And, you know, we know that large scale disasters are almost always accompanied by increases in mental health concerns. So that includes PTSD, but also things like depression, anxiety, and grieving is a big part of it, too. I spoke with lots of folks who lost people who their typical grieving processes were either completely skipped over because they weren't able to hold funerals or they were severely truncated or they just did things over Zoom. And so for people like that, it's, you know, they're just still grieving and they're in the middle of that process still. And so they just need a little more time. Tell us about some of those people. Lauren in Staten Island is one. Yeah. So I spoke with a woman named Lauren. She lives in Staten Island. Her grandmother died of COVID. She was able to 
say goodbye to her before they were, she was put on a ventilator and then she ultimately died. Um, she got COVID herself three days later and had quite a severe case. So she was really sick. She knew that her grandmother had just died. And in New York City, um, that's where I live, it was quite severe at that time. You know, she had to deal with all of this stuff like recovering from COVID. There was a um, crematory backlog. You know, we had uh, ambulances going all times of the day. The city was shut down. It was a really traumatizing time for her. And she told me about how recently she went to the mall for the first time. Um, and she essentially had a panic attack walking in, being surrounded by crowds. She was wearing her mask, but she just had this moment of like, you know, she's just not over what happened to her. And so it was really difficult to try to enter a crowd in that way. And Sophia, tell us about Sophia in Oklahoma. So Sophia is an 18-year-old woman who lives in Oklahoma, and her 13-year-old sister died of COVID. And so she had an autoimmune disease, so she was more susceptible to getting COVID. Um, and so Sophia, even though she's fully vaccinated, she still wears her mask um, out of respect for other immunocompromised people. And so Sophia just, she has this intimate knowledge, unfortunately, that there are people out there who are more at risk. And so she still wears her mask out of, she said, honor and respect for her sister. Now, for most people, getting the vaccine is relief. It's also motivation to loosen up on mask wearing. And I see people posting on social media. They're so happy when they get their vaccines. But for Lauren and Sophia, that wasn't the case. So why not? So Lauren got her second dose right around the year anniversary of when her grandmother died and when she got COVID. And so for her, she just thought, you know, what if my grandmother could have been alive a little bit longer? And and same with Sophia. You know, we just heard that the FDA said that 12 to 15 year olds can get the vaccine recently. Anna would have been in that category and she didn't get a chance to do that. So I think we just have to remember that these big milestone moments that are caused for celebration for a lot of us can actually be moments of a lot of grief and sadness for other people. On the question of behavior, actually sustainable behavior. So I'll tell you this about me, um, Sheila. I've always wanted to wear a mask, even pre-pandemic. It always just seemed to make a lot of sense to me. You're wearing a mask. You don't have to worry about someone sneezing around you. You don't have to smell people's uh, sweat or perfume or cologne. It just made a lot of sense. I never did it because I always felt embarrassed to do it. Uh, But now I'm going to do it going forward for a while. I don't know when I'm going to stop, but I'm going to keep on doing it. So when it comes to that kind of behavior, how sustainable do you think that that's going to be in general society going forward? So I'm half Chinese and in East Asian cultures, they we've been wearing masks for a really long time. Anytime I visited my grandparents, you saw people wearing masks. I think it's very possible that a lot of people, not for mental health reasons, but just for sort of everyday practical reasons, will keep masks in their lifestyle. I mean, look at what happened with flu season this year. We had basically no flu season. I think people can see the benefits to that. I talked to lots of people who said their allergies have been amazing this season. That too, yeah. Because they've been wearing a mask. Um, The Guardian had a really good piece talking about how women... Uh, like wearing a mask because they don't get catcalled as much on the street because they have this sort of protective layer between them uh, and men on the street. So, you know, I think that culturally being asked to wear masks to protect ourselves and others has been this way to sort of think about this thing that before would have been really weird. We had this opportunity where everybody had to do it and now it doesn't seem strange. So I, I think it's totally possible that masks will be a presence in our life from here on out. We're talking to Sheila Love, senior staff writer advice about people who are slower to give up on masks because of grief and trauma. What kind of discussion were you seeing about masks that led you to write this article? I was seeing um, in response to loosening restrictions, for example, the CDC 
um, talking about how it's okay to not wear your mask outside when you're not in a crowd. And, 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 that's, and that's true because we really recognize that the virus is airborne now and when you're outside, there's so much ventilation and air moving around, the risk is really, really low. But I, I saw a lot of discussion about people saying, well, the CDC said this and I still see people wearing masks outside. Why is that? Why aren't they taking them off immediately once the CDC says it's okay? And there was some discussion about how this was just a political decision. People were keeping their masks on in order to uphold their political identity. For, for example, there was an article in The Atlantic called The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown. <laughs> and so I thought that that was just missing like a whole bunch of things. <laughs> I mean, first and foremost, which is why I wrote my piece, I thought that there was a glaring omission of mental health, which is that people have been through a lot in the last year. And one of the reasons they might still be wearing their mask is that they're anxious or scared or they have trauma, you know, all of those things. And then there's all the other cultural and social reasons that we that we just discussed. Um, so I, I don't think that it's just an expression of political identity. I think that it's a really complicated phenomenon. If people are still hanging on to some of the more cautious behaviors, it's totally understandable. And there are so many assumptions made, uh, you know, Shayla, when when someone sees someone wearing a mask and automatically assumes, well, they got to be liberal and they're holding on to this for political reasons. They have no idea what their lived experiences might be that leads that leads them to keep wearing a mask. Yeah. And, you know, to the extent that politics is related um, in the past year, there have been some people largely on the right. We have data on this that have refused to wear masks that have denied the severity of the outbreak and are now resisting getting the vaccine. And so because of this, you know, social distancing and mask wearing became this like cultural and social signifier, which means that you're taking the virus and the pandemic seriously. So this, this plays into it too, because I've talked to lots of fully vaccinated people who said that they would feel comfortable wearing a mask outside, but they want to signal to others that they're taking it seriously. When you see somebody without a mask, you don't know if they're just following the updated protocol or if they've never worn a mask and they're not getting vaccinated. And so that can really exacerbate people who are struggling. Like I talked when I spoke with Lauren, the woman from Staten Island, she said that throughout the past year, people have been telling her that the pandemic was a hoax and that they didn't want to wear masks. And they told that to her while she was in the midst of grieving her grandmother's death. So she, even though she's going to be fully vaccinated quite soon, she's still going to wear a mask to help other people navigate the world when they go back out into it. When I go out, Shayla, I'm not only wearing a mask, but I wear a, a, a cap really low, really low <laughs> right above my eyes and a hoodie top over it. So I'm, like, I'm as wrapped up as you can possibly get. And I know people are staring and I got a feeling I got a feeling down the road, you know, even in California, even in big blue California uh, here in Los Angeles, I'm going to get into some kind of confrontation. Someone's going to have a problem with me wearing a mask, say, in 2022 or 2023, if I'm still doing it. Yeah, well, it sounds like, I don't know if you've heard this phrase on TikTok, uh, like, please don't perceive me. That sounds like what you want is that you just don't want people to perceive <laughs> yeah. you. But, you know, I think it, I we I wrote about this in the piece, too. Excessive caution doesn't incur risk to anybody else. Like right. we're talking about individual right. decisions that are excessively cautious. The individual decision to not get a vaccine, for example, um, if you don't have a good reason for doing so, is that incurs risk onto others. Being overly cautious doesn't. So if somebody has a problem with that, I, I'm not sure what to say. I'm going to try to be nice. I'm going to try to not be confrontational back, but I got just got a feeling something's going to happen. So if you hear my name, Shayla, in the news in 2022, that might be the reason. Well, one more thing really quick on this, Shayla. I mean, what kind of assistance or understanding can people show to those who, who maybe don't want to give up on mask wearing yet? 
I think it just requires a little patience and compassion. It's like we said before, everybody's been through different stuff over the last year. And all the the mental health professionals that I talked to said that these more extreme behaviors like masking outside when the risk is really low, for example, um, those things will fade away over time as things get safer just on their own. There's no reason for us to do a lot of hand-wringing and worrying over it. I think it's really important to say, right, that the pandemic is really far from over, especially globally, right? A pandemic is only really over when it when it's done all over the world, because the way these viruses work is if we've got the situation in India, we're, we're not really safe. We have to help out yeah. there because it's, it's a global thing. And so I think worrying about people being overly cautious at this at this stage is a bit premature. And so we should just let people do what they want. And if, if you want to go to the park without your mask and the CDC says it's okay, just enjoy yourself and let other people do what they need to for the time being. Because I feel like it. I think that's going to be my answer if someone asks me why I'm wearing a mask. And I hope it ends there, Shayla, but I got a feeling it won't. Uh, that's Shayla Love, senior staff writer at Vice. You can read her article, People Aren't Addicted to Wearing Masks. They're traumatized at vice.com. Shayla, thanks, uh, thanks a lot. Thank you. Homelessness in L.A. Those words make people feel all kinds of different emotions. Anger, sadness, frustration, hopelessness, but also hope for solutions. Now, to that end, there is a dangerous crisis within the homeless crisis that's costing lives and also millions of dollars in property damage. Find out what it is when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Democracy needs to be heard. This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. What does journalism have to do with democracy? The research shows that when trustworthy journalism thrives, so does civic participation. Reporters from LAist and NPR are here to keep your community engaged and informed. And that's why we need your support. By donating now, you're keeping journalism and democracy strong. Donate now at LAist.com give. And thank you. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Martinez. You almost can't drive around the city of Los Angeles without seeing a homeless encampment. It's a roof over someone's head, but along with it comes some of the same things that anyone who lives in a house has. Ways to cook food and ways to keep warm. Now, sometimes these things that most of us take for granted get out of control for the people who are doing it on a sidewalk. The number of encampment fires has been on the rise the past few years, leading to loss of life and also property for both the housed and unhoused. James Queeley has been reporting on this for the L.A. Times. James, welcome back. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Now, in the three years the L.A. Fire Department has been classifying them, what do the numbers say about fires related to homelessness? Uh, they've effectively nearly tripled. We're going from a little under 3,000 uh, fires that are quote-unquote homelessness-related in 2018 to a little under 6,800 last year. Uh, they make up a pretty significant portion of the total number of fires in a given year. Uh, already on pace this year to be more than half of the fires the fire department responds to citywide. And about a third of those fires have unfortunately been arson or otherwise intentional. And that average of 24 per day in the first quarter of 2021, that number is just shocking. It's almost like it's an unbelievable number. It's unbelievable unless you're, you know, kind of dealing with it in and out, uh, you know, just for argument's sake. Uh, after the story published on Wednesday, we had an incident where a Homeless man was apparently set on fire by an unknown assailant in Lincoln Park yesterday. Uh, I got a call this morning that there were fires at the same encampment less than 12 hours later. Now, James, uh, you've been reporting on this uh, with Doug Smith. Uh, Doug, what do the residents that live next to and near where these fires are happening say about what is happening? Well, I, um, I, I think it's uh, somewhere between uh, outraged and terrified. Uh, we've, we've spoken to building owners who, who have businesses and they have uh rows of tents right next to them in some cases actually attached to the building and they have multiple fires and they're just worried that the fire is going to spread into their building and um, uh, destroy the whole building, which happens from time to time. And then there are residents who live in houses, individual single family homes or, or apartments, and they have fires burning beside them or burning their fences down and they're just terrified. Doug, what about business owners? How are they dealing with fires that damage their buildings? Uh, well, uh, they can uh, uh, give the damage over to insurance. We've um, we've been told by the fire department that there's been a, a close to $200 million in damage re- resulting from homeless fires over the past uh, four years, uh, three and a half years. Um, and some of the owners we spoke to just had their insurance take care of it, but others are, are so uh, upset that they've actually filed lawsuits against the city. Uh, James, what's the city then doing to try and maybe look to inspect encampments, to maybe to head off any fire risk, if that's possible? Generally speaking, uh, city officials, whether it be city hall, fire department, police, have kind of gone back to the, the explanation that they're hamstrung from doing so through the various court settlements that kind of limit uh, the way, you know, uh, enforcement can be carried out against encampments, against people for staying in public because the city doesn't have enough shelter space to legally enforce these things. Beyond that, uh, there's a lot of, you know, from what we've seen with the arsons, which again, make up about a third of these fires, uh, LAPD does not have a very high success rate when it comes to making arrests in these cases. I think they've only made about uh, arrests in 6% of arsons citywide that are homeless and not homeless related. Uh, and when you talk to police and fire, there's kind of a mix of not sure whose responsibility it is. Criminal cases, only a, only a fraction of the arsons get referred to the LAPD. The fire department acknowledges sometimes when they come out, uh, you know, they simply don't have the resources to do a full investigative workup on these. So you've kind of got you've kind of got a lot of different a lot of different factors working against uh, either, like you said, uh, city city representatives, be it police, fire, or otherwise going into the encampments and then actually tracking down suspects when these cases are determined to be arson.
Doug, you guys spoke to uh, the founder of a mobile shower program, and I thought it was very interesting what he said about how this and, and maybe reflects Angelino's indifference about some of these situations. Yeah, Mel and I were having that conversation. Mel is the activist you're referring to. We run Shower of Hope. Okay, that's you, um, Okay. Yeah, uh, Mel was. Um, Mel and I were out in Koreatown. There's an encampment near Sixth and Barendo. That's a couple of tents, a couple of tarps, and a couple of RVs right next to a strip mall. There had been at least three large fires there in the span of about two weeks. You could see scarring on a building. A couple of palm trees blackened. Um, you know, the pictures from the scene just showed fire. You know, 10, 15 feet in the air. And yeah, Mel's basic point was this is happening in a major city center, you know, spitting distance from the wool turn and a metro stop. And you don't even hear about it. You know, it's just it's just normal. It's just accepted, at least in, in Mel's view, that it's just it's just kind of it's just allowed to happen. Almost, James, as if people who sleep in a tent on a street lose their humanity. That was Mel's what was Mel's words for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Doug, in the story, uh, you guys also write about a fire that happened in Venice on April 20th that really puts, I think, into focus how difficult a situation this is for everyone. Uh, tell us about that story in Venice. Sure. This is a, a house uh, a couple of blocks from the beach. It's a, a wood-sided house. Uh, uh, it's actually a duplex, uh, although it looks like one house. And there are um, a, a growing number of tents just on the uh, across the street is a dog park. And the uh, own, uh, the, the woman who, who was a tenant in this house had got to know the people in the park, and she had a dog, and they used to uh, run the dogs together. But then some of them were uh, kind of scary, and, and she she caught a couple of people looking into her bedroom. And she happened to be uh, uh, away with a friend one night, and at 3 in the morning, her house caught fire and burned uh, and was destroyed. Uh, the fire department has uh, determined, or they, they've described it as undetermined cause, but the people in the neighborhood are, are sure that it was set by some somebody, uh, some of the homeless people who wander around in the streets nearby. And Doug, as James mentioned earlier, sometimes you know the fire department doesn't have the money, you know, to to really go out and investigate what happened. So there might be a situation where Doug, they might not never know what really happened there. And I think that's probably the case here. I, I believe the investigation is over and they've, they've uh, ruled oh, wow. it undetermined and that, that'll be the end of it, yes. And the, and the neighbors were talking about hearing the dog howl in panic and pain over what was it. Was, yeah. it, it was terrible. The, the, uh, uh, the owner, of course, was traumatized because her dog died yeah. uh, and she lost her home, but her neighbors were traumatized because they were awakened by the, by the fire and by the howling of the dog, and they tried to get in, but they were unable to, and they just they, they just all felt that they had let this dog. And the dog was somebody who was known in the neighborhood. It was, you know, just one of the uh, one of the, um, the the beans in the neighborhood, and, and they, they all felt that they had let it down. You know, James, I, you know, I think maybe an obvious answer seems to be not to have fires happening for cooking or warmth on streets, especially near homes and businesses, but then... Then there's the squaring of security and quality of life with the rights of unhoused people. So, James, who needs to be the one to find the answer that works? Is it City Hall, the Supreme Court, or a, or a federal judge like David O'Carter? I feel like there's a job for me at City Hall if I could actually answer that question. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's it, but it is a, it is a mix of as you said, it's it's a mix of different responsibilities, and there's a large debate over what the right answer is here. You know, it's it's natural for us to look at the arson arrest rates, for instance, and question how LAPD has has recorded so few arrests and wonder if you've got 
repeat offenders or firebugs, or in some cases I've written about, we've had situations where the attacks on the encampments have nothing to do with the encampments. They're hate motivated by people who are frustrated, either frustrated with there being encampments in their neighborhood or just don't like homeless people. Um, we've seen cases like that. So it kind of becomes a situation of, you know, their reactionary thing is to, to call for more enforcement. But aside from the Supreme Court ruling blocking that, you know, you also have a lot of people, some of them activists, some of them the unhoused themselves, some of them just general people don't believe enforcement's the answer. Um, yeah. yeah, it's is it is it is it services? Is it finding people homes? I mean, it's it's just it's a multi-layered problem. That's James Queeley and Doug Smith with the L.A. Times. James, Doug, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, more take two coming up in about sixty seconds. Stay with us. Democracy needs to be heard. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition. Trustworthy, independent news is getting harder to find, but it's out there, and it matters for democracy. A healthy local news ecosystem leads to a stronger community. You can feel the difference, and you get strong journalism from LAist. So donate today at laist.com slash give. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, Amy Martinez. In 2018, Governor Jerry Brown formed Calbright College, a free, innovative online school with high hopes to increase access to job training and also education for underserved Californians. The program, which got off to a rocky start, has come under audit by the state, and the findings are not good. State Auditor Elaine Howell published a full report with some of her findings, and these include low retention rates, lack of a detailed spending strategy, and also poor student career support. Here to discuss the audit and what it means for Calbright's future, we have with us Michael Zinchitain, education reporter at Cal Matters. Michael, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me again. Now, this audit uh, does not bode well, sounds like, for Calbright. Can you tell us a little bit about what it found? It found a lot of problems. Um, and uh, let's just go through the list. Well, before we go through the list, I think like the the bigger takeaway is it found that the college is just not living up to its ideals, the ideals that uh, the vision that uh, that the college was uh, created uh, to, to, to honor. Yeah, I, you know what? I got to admit, when I first heard about it, uh, Michael, I thought it was a great idea. I mean, co- community right. college students, and I'm one of them, I, I went to four of them before I went to CSUN, sometimes struggle to stay enrolled because of life because life and, and work and all that. And I thought online college, community college, great idea. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yes. Uh, well, I, I don't know. It's not for me to say what's a great idea, not a great idea, but um, it, it was controversial from the start. Governor Brown really wanted it. Um, the uh, head of the community college system really wanted it. Legislators were 
uh, unimpressed with the idea and have remained unimpressed since. Mm -hmm. Um, But the audit found, for example, that the college doesn't really have a clear strategy for using the $175 million that they're supposed to get from the state. It found um, really low retention levels. So for example, more than half of the 900 students that it has enrolled uh, have either dropped out or just stopped engaging with the college for 90 days. Um, It's only graduated, um, in its first year, it only graduated 12 students. Um, What else? Uh, The college was supposed to have plans for helping students uh, get good jobs. That hasn't happened. there's just like, you know, a, a lack of vision overall. Yeah. And just anecdotally, uh, Michael, I know that when col- community college students don't enroll anywhere or they have to leave, they don't go back. It just It's just not the way it is at a four-year university where people take a semester off to go travel through Europe or something like that. It's just kind of a, almost like a death sentence for a, a community college student's career. Um, you mentioned this program never been very popular with, legislature, with legislators, uh, and this audit gives them more really steam to nix it. H- has the legislature given Calbright any sort of timeline to resolve their problems or maybe implement some of the recommendations that they've made? I think it's been mixed messaging. Uh, on the one hand, the the original law to create Calbright uh, gave the college a seven year startup window uh, with like more than a hundred million dollars to uh, in startup money, and then a promise of twenty million dollars each year. I mean, that was the that was the promise. But after the first year of the college's existence, so during last year's budget, when things were looking terrible for the economy. Uh, the legislature proposed to just completely cut the college, just get rid of it and redistribute the money to other community colleges. Uh, Ultimately, in negotiations with the governor, uh, the college survived. This year, uh, there's a law, uh, excuse me, a bill to to once again fully defund uh, the college, and it passed the assembly 71 to 0 last week. So, even though the college was given this seven-year window, the legislature hasn't really been giving uh, the college a lot of breathing room. How has Cal Bright's administrators and, and leadership reacted to all this? I mean, have they even been talking about fixing these issues? Uh, right. So they want to fix them. Um, in in the audit report, the, the Cal Bright leadership agreed with all the findings and uh, they're working to resolve everything. Um, when I spoke to the president of the trustees overseeing Calbright um, in a conversation yesterday, she really wanted to put a lot of, um, she tried to paint the previous uh, executive team that oversaw Calbright as, as, as a key reason why Calbright does, uh, got off to um, a slow start. Um, and in the audit report, um, it, it does place a lot of the blame on that early, on that first team on that first uh, executive team, but it noted, though it noted that the current administration is making improvements, there are also some delays, some oversights, um, but there's no, there's no, there's no complaints over the findings. There are no qualms. Mm. The, the leadership now just wants to, just, just wants to make right. Now, what does this mean for the students, for all the students who are currently enrolled? Well, I mean, I guess we don't know. I mean, right now the college still exists. Um, it's still providing instruction. Um, so if, you're, if you've if you been a student, you remain a student. Um, 
uh, in the hypothetical that the college um, doesn't survive, presumably um, there would be this this period to to um, to close down the school. It wouldn't be abrupt, um, presumably. We we just don't know. Um, and uh, but for now, the college exists. And um, and I should also add that even if the legislature uh, you know, wants to end this thing, it still has to negotiate that with the governor because this is, this is a budget item and, uh, and it's not just the legislature that decides on, on what gets funded. It's, it's a dance between the governor and the legislature. Yeah. I was hoping there'd be some kind of like help to transfer to a, to a other school or just something that maybe that could be offered like at this point, but maybe, maybe we're too early in that process. Um, all right. So Michael, there's not a lot of support for Calbright. Uh, two state uh, assembly members have called it for it to close saying it's time for the uh, quote experiment to end. Uh, what does this mean? What, what does the road down the, you know, in the future look like for Calbright? Cause it doesn't sound, sound like it's very bright. No, pun intended for Calbright. Right, right, right. I mean, um, yeah, the sun might be setting on Calbright, right? Yeah. Um, so Calbright needs to, in order to get back in the good graces of, of, of the auditor, um, it, it needs to uh, show that it is taking all of the criticisms seriously. So that just means um, more reports and evidence of clear policies. Uh, so something like developing a process for managing and accepting contracts and aligning uh, its salaries with other community colleges, improving student recruitment, better tracking engagement of students so that they can graduate and developing a plan to help students land jobs. Basically everything that Calbright was initially designed yeah. to do. Um, so they have a year and a half uh, to, to do that. That's Michael Zinjatain, education reporter at Cal Matters. Michael, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. All right. If you missed any part of Take Two, just head on over to wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at two. Marketplace is next. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.